So I, I said this in the church email, um, but uh, you know, this coming September 30th is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And, and we wanted to, like last year, we wanted to do some thinking about uh, Indigenous experience. Um, and we wanted to just do some learning and some uh, thinking and, and hearing. Um, so uh, this is Ben Peltz. He is uh, he's friends with Jay. Um, I think uh, Nils for sure has heard him speak before. Um, and so Ben is uh, a campus and First Nations ministry leader with Vision Ministries, which is the church planning organization that Jay works with. Um, and he's from Ontario. Um, so he's uh, graciously joined us via Zoom in, you know, Sunday afternoon. It could be, I don't know, whatever he does on Sunday afternoons, but doing that instead. Um, so I really appreciate him being here. Um, he, uh, he's a chaplain at Trent University. Uh, he's a pastor at Lake uh, First Nation uh, in Ontario. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself however else you'd like to, to do that. Um, but Ben has a lot of really interesting sort of areas of thinking and areas of uh, research and just interest. He does a lot of work with uh, with Cree youth in Northern Quebec. He's done that in the, in the past as well. Um, and he did a doc, I, I thought this was the most interesting thing. He did a doctoral thesis involving training Cree mentors using collaborative planning and teaching methods. So I don't actually know what Ben's talking to us about today, but Jay had a lot of confidence and I do too. And uh, we'll have some time at the end for questions. So if there's things that come up, Keep them in your mind, and uh, and we'll do a little bit of Q and A at the end. Maybe I'll just start to pray, and uh, and then Ben, I'll I'll let you take it from there. Sounds good. Okay, Father God, I just uh, thank you again that we can be together, uh, and we can be hearing from people with other experiences and uh, uh, people who love you and want to. Um, I've been trying to serve you, Father, and I just ask that you be with Ben today, Lord. Um, give him the words that he needs to say, and help us, Lord, to have hearts that are ready to hear. And and uh, we just thank you again for your love for us and for for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks, man. Amen. Thanks, Jeff and Jay, for arranging this and setting the stage. And thanks everyone for having me with you this Sunday. I wish I could be with you in person, and maybe that will happen down the road. Jay has certainly primed the pump that that might be something we can arrange. But for now, it's nice to be able to join you this way, and I'm glad we have this technology so we can connect with each other across the broad country that we live in. As Jeff shared, I am a husband, a father, and a pastor living in Peterborough, Ontario, which, for those who aren't familiar, is about an hour and a half north of Toronto. And on the screen, you should see a picture of my immediate family. Uh, on my immediate side, my right-hand side, there's my wife, Shoshana, and we've been married since 2010 and met way back in high school and started dating then, so really wonderful person that I'm glad to be able to share in life with. And beside her is her sister, Danielle, who we somewhat raised because of the tough circumstances that their family of origin had. Behind her is her husband, Garrett, and then uh, beside the two of them is my daughter, Aaliyah, who is now 12 years old and one of the joys of my life. And uh, I am really blessed to have such a wonderful family uh, and they are very much part of everything that I do in my ministry. My ministry itself really takes place over three locales and then a number of different hats that I wear in those different settings. 
As Jeff mentioned, I'm a campus and First Nations ministry leader with Vision Ministries of Canada. And how that plays out is that I'm a chaplain at Trent University, which is the local university in Peterborough, where I was a student and continued to lead a campus ministry connected to InterVarsity. And Trent is a school that specializes in Indigenous issues. So I was exposed to Indigenous issues on a deep level for the first time while I was studying at Trent and continued to engage in that topic at the university while I fill out that role as a chaplain. Alongside that, I have been going out for a number of years to a community called Nemska, Quebec, where I've been serving Cree youth since 2010. And this is one of two James Bay Cree communities where I have the honor of running camps and other youth ministry programming alongside local leaders. And that's where I did my doctoral research about training mentors in those communities as well. Uh, and then most recently, I've gotten involved in a First Nation much closer to home at Curve Lake First Nation, which is just about half an hour outside of Peterborough. And I've been pastoring a small church there since about 2019, which, as you can imagine, was quite the journey because that was right before the pandemic hit. And so then I had to go through the process of onboarding and getting to know people while we were navigating all of the changing circumstances. And uh, Jeff asked what I'd be doing on a Sunday. Well, actually, the truth is I would probably be editing and uploading a sermon right now because that's uh, one of the roles that I quickly took on with the church is it's an elderly congregation and I'm one of the few with the tech skills to be able to do something like that. Uh, and they have told me many times it was a blessing that I arrived when I did so that we could do Zoom church and other things like that that I'm sure you had to navigate as well. So those are the three different locales that my ministry plays out in the, the Trent University setting, the Nemska and Northern Quebec setting, and then Curve Lake First Nation are the three places that I predominantly serve using the gifts and abilities God's given me. And one of the commonalities across these three locations is Indigenous people. While I'm not Indigenous myself, nor was I particularly close to Indigenous people growing up, I have had the opportunity to serve First Nations people for over a decade now in a number of different contexts and styles of ministry. I didn't intend that, that was never something I intended to go into, but I'm very grateful that God did. And this theme has been increasingly on other people's radars since the mass grave uncoverings and the official declaration of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Day. Uh, and so I've been able to help share with people about some of the lessons that I've learned through this ministry as a result of that increasing interest that churches and ministries are paying to this set of issues over the last five or six years. So here, are, uh, what I want to do is walk through uh, five different lessons that I have learned as a result of my involvement in First Nations communities. I will warn you, it's a lot to take in all at once, but I tend to err on the side of I'm going to cover a lot relatively quickly, and then we can have a Q&A at the end where we can go over some of these things in more detail, whatever stands out to you and whatever piques your interest that you'd like to dig in more deeply on. So the first lesson, and really central to all of the other lessons, is the fact that colonialism and its ongoing effects are real. And this is something that I feel like on some level we shouldn't have to say, but unfortunately there has always been a tendency within our society to question whether colonialism really took place or whether it was really that bad. Uh, and today I think the more that our society pays attention to it, the more there is a little bit of a backlash where people say this is just somebody's agenda that is trying to force this down our throats. And so uh, we sometimes people will say, no, no, we, we shouldn't believe any of that stuff because it's just that, that progressive agenda. But I can say based on my firsthand experiences and observations, there is a lot of truth to that part of history that we often have neglected in our society. 
It begins with the fact that back many generations ago, white European settlers came to Canada looking sometimes to escape the conflict in their own land or to win the conflict abroad. Uh, but as part of that, they saw their culture as superior and they often tried to reduce or eliminate other people's culture. And this is where the term cultural genocide has been picked up for the way that First Nations people in Canada were handled by the Canadian government and often in uh, in cooperation with the church to try and reduce and or eliminate their culture. The result of this and the policies that came alongside it, like making their practices illegal and putting them into residential schools, is what's called intergenerational trauma, where a lot of people were traumatized and then because they were traumatized, they passed that trauma down to the younger people that they were raising, partly because they were taken from their parents and didn't learn how to parent themselves, and partly because they lashed out of their own hurt and hurt others as a result. And this led to a situation where today we have a lot of inherited disadvantage across our country, where the, the Indigenous people across our land often do not have the same level of wealth and the same level of stability within their home communities as many of us would take for granted. And of course, this is not simply an individual phenomenon. This is something that is true across the people groups, and that has a ripple effect in its own right. Of course, many of our churches or denominations weren't directly involved in these practices. Nonetheless, we need to acknowledge that we have all benefited from the breaking of treaties with First Nations people, the taking of their land, the exploitation of their natural resources, and even the use of their soldiers to fight our wars, and that all of that contributed to the intergenerational trauma and inherited disadvantage that First Nations people have in their communities today. One example of where I learned this firsthand was running a sports camp in Nemska, and I remember sitting around a circle and doing something that relatively normal kind of exercise that you might do with a group of kids, asking them, what would you like to be when you grow up? And the thing that really struck me at the time was how difficult it was for the kids to answer that question, and how one of them answered, I'm probably just going to drink like my dad. And the really striking thing about this was not that one kid in the group felt that way, because I'm sure any group of kids might have one or two in their midst that would feel that way, but the fact that all of the other kids seemed to relate to that. And that was a really visceral experience to see that five and six-year-olds all figured, probably I'm just going to drink up like, uh, grow up to drink like my dad. That is, a, a, for me, a stark portrait of the intergenerational trauma that exists in a lot of First Nations communities. Now, of course, Canadian Indigenous people are not unique in the hurt that they went through, but the intentionality and the universality of that hurt is difficult for people like me to relate to. I know people who have been abused, but I have not been surrounded by people who have been abused for multiple generations, the way that a lot of Indigenous kids are. The net effect of this is that whether we're working directly with Indigenous people or not, I think we are all responsible for understanding and addressing this shared history that colonialism brought about in our land. The second lesson that I've learned is that despite all of that history that I just tried to unpack briefly, a significant portion of Canadian Indigenous people are Christians. And this is sometimes surprising to people because it isn't something that you hear a lot in the dominant cultural narrative around Indigenous people. Some communities embraced Christianity before the relationship between our peoples became oppressive. Others carried on with Christianity that they were taught in residential schools. Despite the trauma they suffered, they found something in that that they wanted to hold on to. A huge portion of Indigenous baby boomers were evangelized by Pentecostal and Baptist missionaries back in the 60s and 70s. And so today, a lot of the elders that I work with in the various Indigenous communities are evangelical Christians because of the wave of missionaries that came. And often, 
what that message of forgiveness and hope brought to them was actually healing from the residential schools and other trauma that they had suffered. And then today, younger generations are more skeptical towards Christianity, but often have many Christian role models that they look up to and have been in settings like revival meetings, like the one portrayed in the tent on the screen right now, that they have given their hearts to Christ, even if they haven't been able to carry on much of a Christian life, uh, or maybe even question some of the core beliefs and certainly the relationship they have with the church. So this was something I became exposed to through going to Nemska for the first time and seeing that a huge portion of the community identified as Christian. And in particular, over the summertime, they have these big revival meetings in these tents. And it reminds me of something right out of the 1960s or 70s, where people will come and they'll be playing on guitars or banjos and singing old country gospel songs. And they'll be praying and uh, speaking in tongues and people are slaying the spirit. And uh, people come from all over to attend these revival meetings, which is not the picture I had in mind when I first got involved in working with First Nations people and how they might relate to Christianity. The net effect of this is that in many communities, Indigenous youth today are actually more likely to have a Christian upbringing than many white youth. This has implications for those engaging in Indigenous ministries and also for those of us who uh, aren't doing so because I think they may play a role in our society rediscovering their faith. I actually think Canadian First Nations people may hold true Christianity longer than a lot of white communities are going to do. The third lesson that I learned is that there is no such thing as cultureless Christianity. This has been true since the inception of Christianity, when the early church agreed that Jewish and Gentile Christians should practice their faith in a way that was true to their roots. This is one of the central narratives of the New Testament, is the Jewish Christians trying to sort out what should we expect of the Gentile Christians when it comes to taking on the mantle of Judaism. And the consensus that they eventually reached was that there's a minimal set of moral expectations that we're going to carry over from our Jewish faith, but otherwise we're going to allow them to discern what God is doing in their midst rather than insisting that they become like us. I think that this is even more true today when Christianity has become a global religion over the last 100 or 150 years, with European, South American, African, and Confucian variants of Christianity popping up and becoming really prominent in their particular regions, among many others. Our thinking and practices always draw on our cultural norms. I think that's just a universal truth. And because of that, I think our call as Christians isn't to eliminate or to replace culture, but rather to redeem it. And what I mean by that is that we are to look at our culture deeply and understand what is God-given and good and can be used to worship and honor him. And we need to look and see what is broken and try and correct those brokennesses that exist in all of our cultures. And I think this is something that we're all responsible for with our own culture, rather than trying to make other cultures adopt our cultural practices. One example recently where I got to see that at play was a funeral for a middle-aged man who passed away from cancer a couple of years ago. And we had a celebration of his life, and I saw an interesting intergenerational thing going on, where the oldest member of the family, the grandmother, she was committed to the Christian way of being, and it was one of those evangelical Christians converted decades ago to the faith. And she wanted to make sure there were Christian hymns that were being sung as part of the celebration. The, the wife of the man who had passed away, she had a general Christianity, but really for her, it was the country songs and more secular side of her culture that she wanted to bring in. And then the youngest, the daughter of the man who had passed away, wanted to make sure that there was actually an integration of some indigenous practices into the worship service that took place as part of his, his funeral. And what was neat is that even though I don't think 
the grandma would have ever chosen to use those indigenous practices and the granddaughter would have ever chosen to sing the Christian hymns and neither of them probably would have integrated the secular songs that they used. Uh, the three of them were able to unify around, we wanna use all of these things to honor this man and celebrate God uh, and the way that he worked in his life. So to me, that was a beautiful portrait of the way that culture and faith can co-mingle. Another example is that recently we started practicing communion as a feast within our congregation, which is really uh, reflective of the culture's tendency to have feasts and celebrations like that together. And it goes right back to the early church and how they tended to practice things. The net effect of this is that I think our task as Christians is not to promote a universal Christianity, but to redeem our culture and to support Christians from other cultures as they do the same thing. It requires a certain openness to people practicing their faith in ways that we don't, but I think ultimately we will be stronger if we can all redeem our cultures instead of trying to impose culture on each other. There is no such thing as cultureless Christianity. The fourth lesson is that Indigenous values line up well with Scripture. And this is something that has struck me over and over and over again, especially in the last four years as I've been pastoring this church. I have had the opportunity to go deep into the Bible and Indigenous traditions with the people at Curve Lake. And it occurs to me over and over again how much semblance of uh, similarity there is between the two groups' understanding of things, especially the Old Testament and Indigenous teachings. One example of this that I have on the screen right now is what's referred to as the seven grandfather teachings, which as far as I can tell is actually one of the ones that is fairly universal to indigenous peoples across North America. And you can see that they, they are courage, love, wisdom, respect, truth, humility, and honesty. And these are virtues that the indigenous people try to share and pass on to younger generations as a core part of how they understand life should work. And I don't know about you, but when I look at this, I'm like, that sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirit that I see being listed by Paul. There's a lot of overlap there in terms of the kind of character that we're trying to form within people. Alongside that, I see within indigenous teachings, uh, high respect for animal life and for the land, which are both things we see the Israelites being given instructions on in the Old Testament. Alongside that, we see a respect for elders, which I actually think is one of the things that my culture has largely forgotten. We tend to idolize youth, whereas indigenous communities place a high respect on elders and the wisdom that they have. And for me, one of the things that is really beautiful to see is when an older person gets up to talk, all the young people who otherwise may be very disorganized and chaotic fall right into listening to that elder because they're so used to that. They also have a tradition saying that they try to plan all of their community decisions uh, in consideration of how it will affect people right through to seven generations, which sounds a lot like the kind of intergenerational teachings that uh, God gives to the Israelites in the Old Testament as well. And again, something that maybe our culture is not great at doing because we tend to be thinking of the immediate impact of things more than the long-term impact of them. For me, this has been most illustrated by a lady in our Bible study who was raised with a general traditional background, but also some exposure to Christianity. And she in our Bible studies over and over and over again says, this is where we got our teachings when we're reading the Bible. And I think it's a little funny because it's like, well, no, clearly indigenous people in Canada didn't have the Bible and therefore they didn't get their teachings from the Bible. But what she's trying to say is not necessarily there's a direct cause and effect relationship there, but that God was the one who inspired the Bible and her own people to have many of these teachings. And in that, I think she's dead on. The net effect of this is that we can and should learn from indigenous teachers, even in my opinion, if they're not professing Christians. Obviously we need to be discerning about what teachings do and don't line up with Christianity, but I have found that there's a lot of wisdom to glean from indigenous culture that we can actually adopt and practice as Christians as well. Indigenous values line up very well with scripture.
And finally, the last lesson, which is one that I suspect many of you already are inclined towards, but it's always worth holding on to, is that building relationships is an end in itself. There are a lot of terrible ideas underpinning colonialism, but I think the most pernicious and really the one that underpins all of the others is the idea that forcing people to think and act like us will save them from sin. And in my opinion, this is the antithesis of Jesus himself, who rejected coercion as a means of controlling even one's enemies, let alone people that were trying to befriend and love. I don't know many churches today that rely on physical violence in order to bring about the kind of change they want to see in people's lives. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often rely on social pressure and emotional manipulation more than we ought to in the way that we try to convince people to live the way we think they ought to. And I think that is something that I've had to reflect on a lot as a pastor. And I've tried to return to Jesus's central commandment, love one another as I have loved you, as the heart of what I am practicing and what I'm inviting other Christians to do. Loving relationships is our primary ministry. Everything else is secondary, including preaching and converting people, because that can only be done well if it flows from and is underpinned by loving relationships. So we need to get back to the core of relationships as our primary ministry. I think this can only be done if we spend time together and learn to listen well to each other across deep differences, especially in our increasingly pluralistic society where our neighbors may think totally different than we do about the world. We need to figure out how to, how to understand people who come from a totally different perspective in life. One of the examples where I, this lesson of relationships being key was driven home for me was in the camp setting where we had a leader who had been serving with camps down south when I say down south, I mean Peterborough, which is not that far south, but it's still much more south than even you are. And we, we up in uh, we went up to Namska and we're running this camp, and there we try to have a more hands-off approach to leadership, so that we're we're inviting and we're encouraging rather than trying to take authority over people. And he was upset because one of the leaders was smoking, and he cracked down really hard on this leader. And his girlfriend came back at him and said to him, "You're not allowed to do that. That's not okay. You're not our boss." We are all friends here. And to me, that was such a wonderful thing to see that this young lady and her boyfriend, both indigenous, they, they knew that was part of the culture of the camp. We are all friends here. You're not our boss. And I think Christian organizations, Christian communities would do better if in general, that was the way that we approached our relationships, even with our leaders. The net effect of this is that we ought not to treat indigenous people as a cause. We should look to do uh, we, we can certainly look to do projects with them, but I think that if that's the primary thing that we're doing, we're looking for the, uh, the projects that we can do and we see them as a cause to fix rather than people to build relationships with, we are at risk of actually repeating a lot of the harm that colonialism caused. And that would be something I'd critique the church of, but I'd also critique the secular culture. I think often they too tend to see indigenous people more as a cause than actual people to build relationships with. We must build relationships with Indigenous people and then see what kind of ministry opportunities flow from that rather than the other way around. So those are the main lessons that I've drawn from my time with Indigenous people. Uh, again, the main, the main lessons are colonialism and its ongoing effects are real. A good portion of Canadian Indigenous people are Christian. There is no such thing as cultureless Christianity. Indigenous values line up really well with scripture and building relationships is an end in itself. 
These lessons directly affect my work as a pastor to Indigenous people, but I also hope that you can see the relevance to all of our ministries, and I think that if the church could live this way in general, it would build a healthier community across our land, and it would enable us to be a lot more closely in step with Indigenous people when the opportunity arose, whatever your context is. I look forward to clarifying or building on anything that caught your attention during the question and answers. Thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Ben. Uh, any questions for Ben? So Ben, what was your what was your first exposure to working with Indigenous people? My first exposure was right after graduating from Trent University with my bachelor's degree. My wife and I we got married, and then a mentor of mine called me to ask if I could uh, help with, well, originally he was actually asking for a reference for somebody wanting to help with one of the sports camps he was running. And then he turned around and said, hey, would you and Shoshana like to come run one of the sports camps as well? Yeah. So yeah. that was 2010. We went, we lived there for six weeks and served in Nemska uh, running a sports camp. And then we got invited back to help with Bible camps was the primary ministry for a number of years uh, at the invitation of Cree Christians in those communities. Be careful about people who are asking for references. They're probably <laughs> there. We go another good life lesson. <laughs> I have a question, actually, Ben. What would you yes. say are some of the obstacles uh, facing, you know, churches? I mean, get non-indigenous churches in Canada in terms of like reaching out, collaborating, and cooperating with indigenous churches and indigenous people? Great question. Uh, I'd say first and foremost, I, I want to be careful. I don't think every Christian or every Christian community is called to directly care for indigenous people. Sometimes it is just a lack of opportunity. And I think that uh, we need to be discerning about the people God has immediately placed in our midst who we are supposed to care for. Um, so I think that's one barrier, especially if there's people, you know, living and serving pretty far away from indigenous communities, then I'd say, okay, maybe that's not something that's a primary calling of your church. Although sometimes even then there are some people in the church who have more direct connections to indigenous people. Um, but I think if every church across Canada suddenly took it upon themselves to try and minister to indigenous people, uh, there'd be way too many people with way too little understanding and experience trying to do too many different kinds of things. Uh, so I don't know if that would necessarily be a good outcome. Um, my, my first push is just be aware, be understanding and shift how we're living in general. And that then prepares us if there is opportunity to serve First Nations people to do so in a healthy and sustainable way. That said, uh, I do think that people and communities that are a little closer to the issue uh, and are able to take steps forward, one of the one of the things that gets in the way is fear. Uh, people know that it's a complex issue and they also just see the gap culturally and experientially between themselves and indigenous people. And so sometimes they are reticent to reach out. Uh, sometimes they just don't know where to start if they're looking to get more involved in that. Uh, and my encouragement is that uh, look for the natural entry points that most Indigenous communities have. They have things like the powwow, they often have some sort of community center that gives information about the community. Uh, they will have other feasts and celebrations throughout the year that are designed to be public. Sometimes they even have things like language classes where you can go and learn a little bit of the local language. And I would say uh, get a couple of people in the church to check those things out 
and see what relationships and opportunities emerge from there rather than thinking, oh, we need to figure it all out ahead of time and go in and do some sort of meaningful ministry before you've even started building the relationships. That's generally my encouragement. And I feel like a lot of people, once they can take those first relational steps, the fear begins to wash away because they realize, again, these are people not a cause. Uh, and I know how to build relationships with people, even if I have to learn to adjust a little bit how I'm doing that in this particular context with these particular people. Does that answer your question? Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's good. Today, increasingly, the polarized politics also uh, seems to be a challenge where I, I know a, a lot of pastors, a lot of church leaders feel like I can't engage these issues because there's some people who are going to be totally for this and some people who are totally against it. Um, but I, I don't know what the context like is like with you. You're a small enough group. I'm uh, thinking maybe you've got a little bit more natural overlap in terms of what you're looking to do. So. I have a question. It's a pretty random question, but I, I, I work in an academic setting where there's, there's polarization, but it's really in vogue to have a lot in your email signature and certain things at the beginning and end of presentations. And I was, and you can kind of tell where people are at politically based on their email signature. And I always kind of wonder, is this, because I, I think that was an excellent presentation and everything you say is, is, is important and I want to engage in this more. Um, but it sometimes it raises the question for me, do, do, do Indigenous people, like how important is my email signature? Is this something that academics do for each other or is this something that, that creates change? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. It's, it's actually like I see that in the academic context, Trent University as a chaplain and stuff. I see some of those things playing themselves out for sure. Um, I, I would say that most of the Indigenous people that I work directly with, that is pretty low on their priority list. What kind of email signature you have or things like that. Um, and there is actually, even among more engaged activists slash academic Indigenous people, there is sometimes pretty strong pushback against that because they see it as tokenism. You're, you're just doing this to show that you care to your peers or whatever, but you're not really making any substantial difference with it, right? So there is, there is definitely a, a complexity to that. Um, I think that the value of it within that kind of setting, in my opinion, uh, is that you're trying to set an internal culture that is aware of the history and that you're trying to change how you're living as a community. And I do think that is something churches ought to be thinking through as well. Uh, one classic example of this that comes up from time to time is the idea of a land acknowledgement and, and saying we are on a particular people's traditional territory or something like that. Uh, and that's something, again, you see a lot of back and forth around that. I can say again, the people that I work with, that's not the most important concern to them. If they come to a church, they're not coming in saying, oh, are they going to do a land acknowledgement or not? Because if they don't, I'm walking out of here. That's not the feeling that most of them are going to have uh, as, as they're engaging with Christians. But uh, I do think that being aware of the history of the land that we're on and the treaties that were formed between our people and how well those treaties have been or haven't been honored is a really important part for us as settlers. To, to be aware of. And a land acknowledgement can be one step forward for a community being able to do that, to help the, the people know what is the history there, right? So uh, that to me is, it's about the intentionality. Are we creating an internal culture that is healthy and safe for Indigenous people and uh, for us to be able to live differently uh, in, the, in the case that we're interacting with Indigenous people? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just in response to your last answer, can you give me any examples of where we actually um, kept the treaties? I'm just 
wondering if you would do that. From a historical point of view, it's preached. Yes, I'm certainly not an expert in treaty history, so uh, I cannot <laughs> answer that with any sort of authority. But I would say you are what you're hinting at, which is that um, uh, most of them have been broken, at least in part, is true as far as I can tell. Um, uh, yes, so uh, that is something to be aware of. Um, sometimes the the land that was allotted or things like that, you know, the boundaries are pretty close to what was agreed upon. But even then, there's often debate about whether or not that was the agreement in the first place and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe maybe on a more optimistic note, actually, just to build on that, one of the things that I see uh, in the James Bay Cree communities, and actually my dad, around the same time I went into ministry and did, with Indigenous people, uh, shifted his role in the government to work uh, as a negotiator for the Canadian government. Uh, one of the things I actually do see working fairly well, not perfectly, but a lot better than the historic treaties, is the newer treaties that are being formed as part of self-governance agreements. Um, and especially in the James Bay Creek communities, they've done a very good job of carving out a lot of their own autonomy and resource usage and stuff through treaty making uh, and uh, are a bit of an example to other communities about how they can do that. So I do think that treaty work still has a role to play in our society and, and sometimes in a way that can be celebrated, but probably not the original treaties, but more recent ones. Yeah, I think I saw a hand going up in the back. I have a question. I'm just curious, the Cody's that there there is a lot of the like land acknowledgements before and after, you know, parties or whatever. Is that is there a lot of? Uh, sorry, I, I, you said is there a lot of, and I didn't hear the last part. You know, with, with these before a play or before a hockey game, whatever, land acknowledgement. Yeah. You know, we, we, we recognize we are on treaty, whatever. Yeah, so is there a lot of that out there? Where do you want? Oh, yeah, in Ontario, it's a fairly common practice. Yeah, that's right. Like most of the government uh, or government-funded institutions here would practice that. I don't see it as often in churches or things like that, but if you go to the university, most of their public meetings will have that taking place. Uh, again, if you go to like a Canada Day celebration or something, probably there will be mention of the land that you're on, stuff like that. So. Ben, you mentioned at one point just how all Christianity is cultural and how cultural kind of permeates everyone. Yes. Um, do you have any specific, you already touched on a bit, but just specific examples that come to your mind of like, a, hey, here's something that we might be critical of indigenous Christians for, which if we understood their culture, we understand it's just cultural and not a rebellion against Christian morality. Do you have anything kind of that comes to mind in their practices? Just to say, hey, this is their culture. I wish other people would understand this and there would be less sort of criticism of First Nations. Um, I can give examples. Uh, I also would just encourage you to check out Indigenous Christian teachers who have spoken a lot on that front. Um, so there's an organization called NAITS, N-A-I-I-T-S, that does work uh, academically for Christians, and they have a lot of good articles and videos and stuff on this topic. Uh, other teachers like Ray Aldred, Terry LeBlanc, Cheryl Baird, there's, there's a number of them who are touching on this. Uh, and part of the reason I say that is because I really do believe the process of discerning and redeeming our cultures is largely the responsibility of the people who are in the culture in the first place, right? Um, but an example of a practice that I have 
opened up to over time and am willing to engage in at this point in time is something called smudging. I don't know how common it is among First Nations people in your region, but the basic idea is that they light some uh, uh, one of the one of the sacred medicines they call it, but they have sweetgrass or cedar or or tobacco um, uh, or uh, I'm forgetting the fourth right now. Anyways, but they 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 kind of will put that into a container and they will light it on fire and it creates billowing smoke. Uh, and then you you essentially wash yourself in the smoke. You put it over your head. You put it in your eyes. You put it on your mouth. You put it in your heart. And as you do so, you say a prayer saying, "Give me a clean mind. Give me a clean eyes. Give me a clean mouth. Give me a clean heart." Right, uh, and this is something that that some indigenous people are very wary of, uh, including indigenous Christians. A lot of them would not practice this because of the fact that they were taught that these these things were idolatrous. That you're you're worshiping the smoke, uh, or that you're giving it too much place in your faith, or something like that, and that you don't need the smoke in order to be clean. All you need is Jesus and faith in Him. Which uh, the indigenous Christians I know would say, absolutely, I believe that Jesus is the one who purifies us from sin. Nonetheless, I can say that prayer to Jesus while using the symbol of the smoke, and that helps center me and and remind me of what it is that Jesus has accomplished on my behalf, right? Uh, and I I personally can see no clear reason why I should object to that. Although I encourage people, if your conscience is not clean, if you feel like this is a bad thing to do, then don't do it. Uh, I draw heavily on the New Testament passages around food sacrificed to idols. Uh, and Paul makes it very clear, you are free to eat the food that's been sacrificed to an idol if your conscience is clean. But if you eat that food and you are worried that you're engaging in idolatry, you're actually condemning your own conscience before God. Right. Uh, and so I tend to have the same principle when I'm talking to Indigenous people. If they have a guilty conscience, don't do it. Uh, and I would hold that to be true of myself as well. If I'm in a setting and I feel like there's something going on that is dangerous spiritually, I, I will probably abstain rather than partaking and then explore later on what the root of that might be. Uh, as far as I can tell, some of those practices were used in corrupt ways in a number of communities. And this is something I've learned from Indigenous teachers as well, that sometimes the spiritual leaders in communities used practices like smudging in order to reinforce their own power and to hold a, a kind of spiritual authority over people in an unhealthy way. So we always need to be mindful of that dynamic. But a, a lot of the uh, the Christian influences that are Indigenous that I've had in my life would say that doesn't mean we can't reclaim and redeem those practices in the name of Jesus Christ and integrate them into how we're practicing our faith. So that's an example that I've become a lot more open to over time the more I've worked with Indigenous people. Yeah. Not that there aren't any leaders in uh, the colonial churches that would use similar techniques to control and <laughs> manipulate people. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, I, I wondered at first if you, where you were going to go is, do you have anything in our culture we need to be mindful of? And I've got a long list. Of <laughs> 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 uh, so, and I know, yeah, it sounds like your church is discerning on that front, but that to me is, that's the real call is, you know, we not, I need to question the celebrity culture and the way that we've created idols out of particular celebrity figures in our community, or we need to, you know, question the way that money and, and influences a lot of our decision or things like that. Those, those are things that are, uh, to me, more important for settler Christians and white Christians to be exploring. Yeah. When you first started, because I know sometimes kind of putting yourself into a different different culture and not being of that culture do you find a lot of pushback and not so much rejection but just kind of in that in that way I mean I know you started with the camps you kind of slowly worked your way into to the culture and did you find it hard as a non-indigenous person to try to relate to those that were there 
Um, I know just in my some of the dealings that I've had with, with them, they they're all, oh, you don't understand, you wouldn't understand your your wife, you wouldn't you wouldn't get it, that kind of thing. Did you find that it took some time to kind of break those um, differences and kind of to be accepted by the by the elders or by the the indigenous youth out there? I have not had a lot of difficulty myself, largely because I have been connected to communities through relationships. And a lot of the people that I have my first relationships with are themselves Christians who know people that I know. And so that made the road a lot easier. Um, certainly there would be people at Curve Lake that don't like the church uh, or probably would be concerned that there's white pastors coming out and doing the primary teaching in those churches or whatever. Um, but I have not had a lot of direct opposition from those people. Uh, and again, one of the things that has caught me off guard is that many indigenous communities are actually majority Christian and even integrate Christian ceremonies into their public ceremonies and stuff like that. Uh, and that's not something that I expected when I first went in. So I would actually say by and large, my work with indigenous people has been uh, very easy in terms of kind of being present and, and uh, not facing a lot of direct opposition. Uh, but what I have to be careful of is quiet pushback that I might miss otherwise. As a white man who's fairly assertive and confident in my life and stuff like that, I tend to come in and share an opinion. And I've learned that a lot of the people in my church or in the camps, if I share an opinion really strongly, they're not necessarily going to push back openly against that, even if they're not sold on it. And so what I've learned to watch for is silence. And often that's the sign of disapproval is that they just won't say anything. And so I had to learn to attend to that and, and draw out if there, there's a lot of silence going on to kind of say, I'm not sure you're actually sold on this idea. Can you share more about why that is and stuff uh, and draw it out? Uh, that's been a, a, a more important learning experience for me rather than having to overcome direct hostility. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I actually think a lot of the Indigenous people I've worked with, the bigger issues, they're going to defer to my authority in an unhealthy way than the other way around. <laughs> We have time for one more question if anybody's got one burning inside them. I'm sure Ben has an email as well. <laughs> yeah, I do. Believe it or not. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Uh, I, I will probably actually poke you afterwards just to get some of those resources you mentioned because um, I think that would be great to be able to share with the folks here. Um, Sounds good. Really appreciate your time and uh, and just uh, yeah, all that wisdom. It was, it was great to great to hear. Um, Thanks so for having me, and you loved the questions and the discussion. Uh, uh, and I hope that again, I might be able to even meet you in person someday. That would be super awesome. Good luck with the editing today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thank you.